something strange happened in 2016. Twitter went down for a bit, and so did PayPal, Spotify, Netflix, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. What was the issue was an IoT hack. Info security in the world of the Internet of Things is a burgeoning security domain. We speak this week with the chief scientist of Bastille, a Atlanta-based IoT security company, Bob Baxley. Bob speaks with us this week about what actually causes IoT hacks and why it's a challenging area to stay on top of in terms of data security. And he shares a lot of detail about how IoT security sort of works and functions in such a way that in a cocktail party, you'll you'll know maybe nine or ten times more than the average person knows about this domain by the end of this podcast. That's the only reason you tune in. I'll be a little disappointed. But the fact of the matter is he explains it rather well and then speaks also to the future of info security with respect to IoT, how technologies like deep learning and TensorFlow may eventually be able to make their way into the security space and sort of make some of the human work there redundant as more and more anomalies, more and more cases and situations within kind of the security domain are able to be coaxed out and understood by machines as opposed to by people. So we have a little bit of a look to the future in addition to a pretty concrete understanding of IoT security today. This interview was done at the Buckhead Club in the Buckhead area outside of Atlanta. Very, very nice little spot right before a speaking engagement here. I was nice enough to be plugged in with Bob from the nice folks at Trius who had made the connection. So glad I got to catch up with them and I hope that this interview is insightful. Bob, I wanted to kick things off with understanding the distinctions for IoT security itself as opposed to sort of maybe the broad concepts of info security in general. There have been some big security events in the last you know year or so that have sort of all tied back into the IoT world. I think a lot of people don't quite understand the distinctions there. How do you explain what differentiates IoT security from InfoSec as it is normally? There's a few things. If, if we think about the InfoSec security space, there's host-based security and network security. So host-based security is things like antivirus. It's an agent that sits on a phone or a laptop. A mobile device manager is the phone, the phone variant. So there's an agent, there's software running on some box someplace, and it's monitoring the box's activity. That's tricky in the IoT space because IoT devices tend to be small, and they don't have the power budget to run a whole new agent. Also, they run on embedded operating systems. So it's hard for an agent maker to get any scale out of it because they have to make a new agent for every device. So on the InfoSec world, Handling IoT security with an agent and host-based security is hard. So the alternative is network security. So again, that's a familiar space in the InfoSec world. So for wired network security, the idea is in your switch, you have intrusion detection systems, you have network access control, you have firewalls, you have all these other data loss prevention, which are detectors for when data is being exfiltrated. You have all these tools sitting on the network looking at network traffic, and they're making inferences about security problems based on the network traffic going in and out of your your vicinity and then going in between all the nodes on your network. So if we think about IoT, the network tends to not be wired. The whole advantage of IoT is that you can spread out these sensors and these devices. And to do that in an efficient and effective way, they tend to be wireless. To handle the IoT security problem, you really need to have a network perspective and you need to build the analogous tools that have been developed for the past two, three decades on the wired space for the wireless IoT space. And that's kind of what we're doing at Bastille here. 
Got it. Okay, makes sense. So there's these two approaches that sort of work in kind of wired world or in other spaces, and really only one of them is going to be able to translate to IoT. And when we were talking off mic, you were speaking a little bit to some of the challenges of that network side in IoT because there's so many more modes of communication between devices than we might have in other domains. Talk a bit about what those unique network challenges are in IoT in a way that'll click for the business folks. Sure. Let me back up and tell a story about the dawn of network security in the 90s for the wired space. In the 90s, there wasn't a preeminent protocol, wired network protocol yet. There was a bunch of protocols vying for supremacy, and each device kind of had their own protocol get rolled. In the 90s, there's a company called Network General. It's still around, still doing lots of great stuff. But back then, they had a sniffer. It was this $25,000 lunchbox-sized box. <laughs> and you went to the floor in your building where you had a network security problem. You plugged in this box, and you could start seeing all the network traffic, and you could diagnose the problem. So if there was a problem, you might realize, well, this device is on a different version than this device, and you can go fix it. So what made network security possible on the wired space in the 90s was they commoditized that ability to look at network traffic. And the big breakthrough there was someone took a Western Digital Network Interface card, a NIC, and wrote a promiscuous mode driver so that they could scan all of the network traffic with a $100 card instead of a $25,000 card. And that had a couple of effects. One is that it commoditized the technology to the point where obvious hackers could buy one of these things, start looking at the network traffic, mm -hmm. and realize, wow, that's a plain text password. Or they could inject traffic. They could fuzz the system and say, if I put a bit here, this guy's going to get a blue screen of death. So that's on the hacker side. We, this was the dawn of DEF CON and all these hacker conferences. And then on the security side, a commoditized ability to scan network traffic made it possible to put a box in a rack someplace and scan all the network traffic and have simple rules that says this device is misconfigured. So now you don't have to have manual intervention, a guy moving around with this $25,000 lunchbox to do that. So 20 years later, we're seeing the same thing in the IoT space. We're seeing devices come out. There's already some wireless protocols that are preeminent, like LTE and Wi-Fi. The problem with LTE is it's expensive and it's power hungry, and it probably has more data throughput than most IoT devices need. But it is long range. Wi-Fi is cheaper, but it's also expensive from a power hungry perspective. And it doesn't go very far. So there's Sigfox and Ingenu and Laura. There's a bunch of new protocols popping up in the IoT space to hit the sweet spot of price, distance, and data throughput. That's tough, huh? Yeah, so it's a really interesting space. And then there's mesh network protocols that have, that have been around for a while that have tried to approach from a different direction. That is, I'll make a mesh to get my distance. So that's like Zigbee and Z-Wave. And there's all these proprietary protocols that don't even have names that do versions of all these things. I was going to guess, and just to interject to sure. flesh out this space, I know this is new for me, even though we've interviewed maybe a dozen security companies, and it's probably new for some of the audience. You know, you'd mentioned all these different protocols that are coming out. I imagine, you know, Wi-Fi, phone, laptop, at some point, you know, the IEEE and whoever else was involved kind of, we got a protocol, end of story, right? And, and exactly. at some point, we came to a confluence, and, and that was the end of the, that story. With respect to IoT, there seem to be so many different funky use cases, like whether it's security camera stuff or lights or something you carry in your pocket or something you put on your dog so you know where he is. It's not even just like, oh, well, my phone and my laptop, I need to connect to the internet. Okay, well, you know, we may be able to distill that down to a single protocol. With IoT, it almost seems like, will we ever? Won't there always be varieties and, you know, mesh for this and something else for that? Because the, the use cases are gargantuanly different. Is that, is that a safe thing to assume? I think that's fair. I do think we'll see more convergence than we have now. 
So right now it's the Wild West. It's like the 90s yeah, where you yeah, really yeah, do yeah. need this. I think we'll start seeing companies get more burned by messing this up, by spending their own protocols. Consumers, I don't think, care that much. If the average consumer's security, hygiene, and consciousness is essentially zero. Yeah, right? you're right. But when we start pulling in IoT lamps, you know, running on Zigbee into the enterprise, and you're plugging in your Zigbee lamp into the, the wall, and it's now a new attack vector into the corporate network, that becomes a big problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's cool videos like this Zigbee worm where these guys, these researchers, put a Zigbee attacker on a drone, flew it by a building, and were able to turn on all the lights and get their worm to propagate through the Zigbee mesh in the building. This, so, this is Googleable. This is Googleable. I, I love, I, I love I, IoT, IoT worm. Yeah. Google okay, that. IoT worm. Nice, guys. All right, you have something to look up now. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. IoT Zigbee worm. Sorry. Zigbee, okay. If you're an enterprise security person, this is why it's worrying. And this is why we'll see kind of more of a narrowing down to just protocols that are really secure because the enterprise will start caring and money will start going into security. A couple examples, we released a hack called Mousejack a year and a half ago. And it turns out that the, the wireless mice that probably most listeners have right now and are using, that's a proprietary protocol between the dongle and the mouse. That's not Bluetooth. Bluetooth tends to charge a licensing fee. That's why you're, one of the reasons your Apple mouse costs $150 and your Amazon Basics mouse costs $20 because they're not licensing Bluetooth. Yeah. Bluetooth is a pretty secure standard. You know, it's a 3,000-page spec that, like you said, a bunch of people have been working on for a long yep. time. There's a bunch of eyes on it, so it has that kind of maturity. Yeah. It's yeah, on version yeah, yeah. 5. The spec that like one engineer at Amazon made for this mouse, or at, we found like 20 different vendors who had this problem. Basically, they advertise that they have an encrypted link, but it turns out that if you send an unencrypted packet to the, the dongle, it'll print it on the screen. So you can do keystroke injection. And this nominally encrypted protocol, it's not actually encrypted. It's been misimplemented. And that's a problem that all InfoSec people know. You never roll your own encryption. You stick with standards and that sort of thing. Huh. Okay, curious. So you think right now we have this Cambrian explosion of different protocols to try to crack a bunch of nuts at once. And through big IoT security events like the ones that we've had, people start to say, all right, well, look, for this bucket of use cases, like we've, as an industry, just have to narrow this stuff down. These have to be our damn protocols, and someone has to keep looking at this stuff because we can't deal with this anymore. And so there will be little clusters that will congeal around different categories of use case, in your opinion, in the next maybe five years ahead or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I think the driver to that will be more and more attacks. Yeah. So somebody's going to figure out how to take something down. Yep. Somebody's going to actually weaponize the Zigbee worm, for instance, and that's going to be a big problem. Nothing makes you move like bad things happening. Right. That's the prime mover of life since the beginning of time. Yeah. So, yeah, bad things. Speaking to the future of security and aiming to kind of prevent some of these bad things, I know that you have some thoughts about how the newer sort of approaches and tools for artificial intelligence, the tensor flows of the world and all these deep learning that's become popular in certain areas like image and video may have ramifications in the space that you function in the security space and, and may help kind of companies tighten down against the increase of threats that are going on there. Talk a little bit about how you see that transition happening. Sure. Real quick. One of the ways that you approach the network security for IoT problem is you observe the network traffic. And the wired network, in the, you know, the old way, you could just put a box in your rack and see all the traffic. There's hundreds of security companies that take the data from that box and look for anomalies or they have some kind of classification that says this is a problem. Well, they just have rules that say, you know, if this happens, throw an alert. Yep. In the IoT space, so the first question is how do you get that data? 
So what is the analogy to the Western Digital Yeah, niche? yeah, please, yeah, yeah. And so one of them is the software-defined radio. Software-defined radio has been around for a long time, mostly in the DoD space. So it's kind of like GPS. You know, the DoD had GPS in the 70s, and we didn't see it in our cars until the 2000s, right? SDR, software-defined radio, is similar, and only recently has it gone from being a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar capability to a couple-hundred-dollar capability. And so that's what it has enabled us to build our sensor, is it's got five software-defined radios in it that lets us scan for all this network traffic that's over the air. That's an enabler, and it's the same sort of thing that happened in the 90s. It's not only an enabler for us as a security company, it's also an enabler for the hackers. Because now with this software-defined radio, for instance, our vulnerability researcher who, who did the mouse chat stuff, Mark Newlin, he was using a software-defined radio to do the injection and to fuzz the protocol and to figure out where the mm. vulnerabilities are. It's always double-edged sword, right? Yeah. So if you go look at DEF CON, Black Hat, the big hacker conferences, more and more of the hacks involve radio frequency. They're actuating those hacks through software-defined radio. Curious. Yeah. Just to dig into the term, part of my job running the show is kind of taking terms that don't immediately click for me and assuming that for the most of the business audience sure. that they won't immediately have a definition in their mind. Software-defined radio. When you say that, my, my mind says, okay, instead of having a certain kind of frequency or way of communicating, this device is leveraging software to be able to sort of pick up on and maybe communicate with a number of them. And, and so instead of being kind of baked into a single you know protocol for communication... We can sort of vary things. That's what where my mind goes when you say software-defined radio. Am I on the right page or is there yeah. somewhere? No, that's exactly right. So okay. you, you can imagine if we take it as an assumption that there's hundreds of protocols or dozens of protocols approaching 100 protocols out there. If you want to be able to scan all of those, each of those devices, like your lamp, has a chip that only does ZigBee. So if you want to do ZigBee and Z-Wave and LoRa, you can't put 100 chips in a box. It just doesn't yeah. make any sense. So to get at it, you have to do the decoding in software, and that's what software-defined radio allows. Okay, cool. So yeah, instead of, again, when you say we're approaching 100 protocols, obviously you're not going to pack all those chips into something. We're going to need something that can rotate through and kind of pick up on as many of them as we can and be space-sensitive here. If somebody invents the 101st protocol... You push a firmware update yeah. to our sensors, and now you have visibility into that Instead protocol. of having to make the case bigger and pack another chip exactly. in there. Okay, exactly. cool. That's the basic premise. So what you folks are kind of having to do in the IoT domain, I presume, is similar to what people do in general InfoSec, where, okay, this person logged into this program, but they never do, and they're at this level of employeeship where they normally don't access those things. Or this person went through this door four times within the week and like they're never even in that building or you know we're looking for anomalies anomalies for behavior on a computer behavior within our premises and we're aiming to coax those out either throw a block on it or present it to someone who can make the call as to whether we throw a block on it for you folks if i'm not mistaken just to clarify this for the audience and i appreciate your you know clarification of the lingo here we're looking at those same kind of interesting anomalous not quite right behaviors between all these different protocols talking at once. You know, like, uh, hey, th- those things don't all go on at one time, or this thing's been blaring signal for the last four hours, and I'm not exactly sure why, and or, or things along those that, lines. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, and the blaring thing, so the other element that we do is we actually localize all the emitters in space. So not only is there a blaring thing near the sensor, that sensor happens to be in your data center, and that blaring thing is exfiltrating data, you know. 
exfiltrating. Oh, that's, that's nice a great term. Te- technology terms, exfiltrating. That's yeah. you can sound smarter just by saying that, folks. <laughs> I would recommend that for you listeners, just use exfiltrating in the next week, and people will presume that your IQ is like twelve or fifteen points higher. So. <laughs> I like the word. But yeah, like you were saying, you don't just know that it's blaring, but you know the location. Right. So, which so, is and, so and so other attack signatures are like force pairing. Somebody's trying to like force pair with your mouse or is trying to force pair with your Zigbee sensor network and your, your HVAC system. They're usually cycling through a bunch of different authentication attempts. So those are the sorts of things you see in a new Yeah, Glasgow. yeah, yeah. Other people are worried about Bluetooth pairing. So one way to get from a wired network to steal data to exfiltrate data is to move from, say, your laptop that has the credentials to access thing to your phone that's not managed, it's a personal phone that's not managed by MDM. If you can get the link between these two, with Bluetooth is a common way to do it, you can get data off your laptop and onto the phone, for instance. And maybe you're doing it knowingly, or maybe a bad guy has put something on a computer that's doing that without you knowing. So another category of machine learning classification we do is similar to what you're saying. There's a new Bluetooth data connection. And if you have a forward-leaning enough security posture, you could say something like, I don't want any Bluetooth data connections in my data center. And we can classify the difference between a data connection and an audio connection. So headphones are fine, but if you start pushing megabytes of data from a device to another device over Bluetooth, that's really shady. And when you say forward-leaning, you mean someone who wants to be on the cutting edge of security, who wants to be aware of and maybe wary of anything that could be a threat. That's what forward-leaning is, someone who's proactive. Exactly. So that, and, you know, it tends to be people with the most to lose. So big financials, big banks, anybody who's, you know, has a lot, has a lot to worry about. Logical. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I'm not forward leaning in my apartment in San Francisco right now. I'll tell you that. I'm sure someone could Bluetooth something in my place, (laughs) my mouse, anytime they want to hack it. But yeah. So if if people did, then they could make the distinction between, yeah, again, like you said, this is spare headphones versus someone is actually taking megabytes out of our premises and putting them wherever else. Right. And one trick there is it's not maybe as straightforward as you might think because Bluetooth has mechanisms. They try to make it so it's hard to do this kind of detection. So you do have to do some fancy machine learning in order to understand. Like, it's not advertised that this is a headphone connection versus data connection. Oh, We're actually okay, doing, okay. like, traffic flow analysis to do that classification. That, yeah, that's wild. Okay, so yeah, yeah you have Because to- that's all behind encryption. We're not cracking encryption. We're not decoding payloads. We just see kind of the existence of data flowing. The, the way that we have to classify the data. So we're kind of more handicapped than some of the wired yeah, yeah. analogous technology. Definitely. But of course, that requires machine learning because now you're you're not getting the signal because it says this is the kind of signal. You're coaxing it forth from the patterns that you're detecting. Exactly. All this stuff is a double-edged sword. There's no way to escape it, right? It's yeah. tough. We're developing tools. Someone else is going to grab those tools and do bad stuff. Yeah, good to know there's at least a way to tackle it now. I did want to get into your perceptions on the future. I know we'll go a little bit over 20 here, but that's not really a big issue. I think we're touching on some cool stuff. You have some thoughts about what the future of machine learning and deep learning might look like in security, what those ramifications might be. Getting your perception of where this field is headed, I think, will be really important. So I'm interested in your perception. Yeah. Well, so we're starting to see more and more. I mean, so we're doing machine learning. It's necessary for our space. Silence is a big antivirus company that's gotten huge traction doing machine learning and marketing machine learning around finding malware and binaries and computers. If you look at kind of the image classification space, we've seen some really neat stuff there. So let me take a second to talk about that yeah, and talk do. about how that might affect us. There's a competition called ImageNet where there's millions of images yep. and there's a thousand categories. And so the dumbest classifier, random guess, you know, you get 99.9% wrong in the classification. And the classification categories are pretty specific. It's things like, you know, a Pekingese versus a wolfhound. It's not dog versus cat. 
Um, so you get all these labeled images. So in 2011, the best error rate was 25%. So, you know, it's better than 99.9, but it's not great. It's not usable, yeah. really, right? And so 2012 was the first year where they applied deep learning to this problem. And that is the idea of stacking neural network layers. So it's an eight-layer neural network Hinton, called, right? called AlexNet. Yeah, Hinton was that year. Yeah. And then Zello did the next year. So Hinton got down to you know, 16% accuracy. So 25 to 16 is a gigantic leap. Error rate, right? Error rate, yes, yes, yes. Error rate. So the next year, Zeller at NYU looked at that, and he had an insight that I think is carries over to lots of domains, which is there's this complicated black box. I don't really understand it. The first thing I need to do to understand it is start visualizing components of that black box. The deep network is a convolutional network, and he said, well, there's these convolutional kernels, and I want to visualize them and understand what's happening under the hood. Are they all doing something that's useful? And basically, some kernels, you can kind of, if it's not filtering anything out, it's not a useful component in the network. So he had this visualization idea that was really effective, and it was able to get him down to 11%. The next year, somebody said, well, let's make a bunch more layers and got down to, you know, 7%. And then Google had this inception idea where they said, there's a trade-off between doing this kind of layer and that kind of layer. Let's just do them both simultaneously in parallel at every step. And then they got down to 6%. And then Microsoft in 2016 did ResNet and got down to 3%. So a human at this problem is like 5 to 10%. Yeah, yeah. So this and thing is better than a human. Yeah, dogs. It's everything. It's like it's like plants, mushrooms, animals, right. boats. It's like well, whatever. Not, not every human knows what a pecan is. No, no right? way. So, yeah, so I don't they, know what a pecan is. They're going to miss that. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I have no idea. So that's the domain. And there's enough money and there's enough talent in those companies, you know, we're talking about Microsoft, Google, and Facebook here, where they have picked this problem and they have completely owned it. They're literally better than humans at it, right? And that's one of the few things where we can say that. There's not that depth and breadth of research in almost any other problem, but it's coming, right? And all the insights from that space are getting wrapped into tools like TensorFlow. They're actually even getting exposed as APIs by Microsoft and Google. So those tools and these ideas, I think we will see in the near term, transition more and more into to other spaces, including cybersecurity. So one of the things that enables this is a mountain of labeled data. And Google has that because people self-label pictures, for oh, instance. Right? I mean, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, so we need more and more labeled data, and we'll figure out better ways to do that. But once you have massive labeled data, you can do things better than humans can, which is not really where we stand, even in the cybersecurity space. If you put the best analysts on a data problem, I'd be willing to bet that person is going to do way better than even the most advanced machine learning at the most advanced cybersecurity companies. Even a best deal. If, you, if we see something, you know, an anomaly and we put one of our best vulnerability researchers on it, they'll find insights that we didn't otherwise have. Yeah. But we're not too far away from that being not the case anymore, which is really interesting and fascinating and exciting. I'm going to make sure that what you said verbally paints a mental picture for the audience. When you say... When we see some kind of an anomaly and we put a researcher security sort of specialist on that, they're going to coax out, you know, what might have caused this? Where might this be coming from? Is this really a threat? Do we need to pay attention to it? And you're saying that some kind of deep learning system in the future will have drunken in, for lack of better terms, so many of these anomalies and been trained on so many yeses and nos on what's a threat and what's not a threat that we may be able to have a whole nother layer of complexity that now the machine handles. Maybe there's going to be somebody way behind all that. Exactly. But even the what right now we would need to sick a person on for, you know, an hour and a half to kind of coax out like, 
where do we really stand with this issue, that that might be something that would be immediately detected. That's right. Analyzing RF signals for finding things has been the thing in the DoD for a long time, as I'm sure you can imagine, finding bugs and walls and whatnot. And that usually takes a guy with a PhD staring at the raw RF data. And so we've already kind of done the first leap at Bastille and kind of made that part easy. But now there's a whole nother stack that we have some capability around. But there's lots to go because you can just look at the best analysts and they're better than the computers are right now. In closing, I think this is a really interesting thread and I want to be able to get to the bottom of it. You folks, luckily, I'm always wary of questions that directly go against the interests of the guests I have on, which is not something I like to do unless I'm forced to do it. This does not do that to you at all. You guys are in the business of creating the devices and implementing the devices and selling the devices that will help people with their security. You're not in the business of selling human labor time to actually do the manual security. Here's a question. Right now, with a lot of these current ML InfoSec programs, it is postulated by some who we've had on that we may need less folks sitting in front of computers detecting things. If we have you know systems that really handle it and they can coax up the ones that matter, we may just have less volume and we may need less people on that particular team just because it, it'll make logical sense. Or we may be able to grow our infrastructure, grow our company with the same number of people because we just don't need the same like human to endpoint ratio that we used to have because the machines are tackling it. Do you see this additional deep learning sort of application and security as we start to coax out more insight, more yay or nay, more threat or not from the machine itself? Does that maybe require even slightly less people on the team to get kind of a similar job done, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And that's what we're driving towards. So just to clarify a little bit, so we do have like a cloud. So the data from our sensors gets back all to the cloud, and that's where machine learning works. And then the customer gets exposed alerts and whatnot. I mean, those alerts are already way more precise than what they had been anything before, and from other companies as well. So as those alerts get more and more precise, and there's less noise and less false alarms, and you can kind of automatically handle certain classes of threats, you're exactly right. You need many fewer analysts tackling and understanding false alarms and trying to hunt down things that should be automated. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a a pessimist about AI in any sense, but we hear a little bit too much, right? My job is to get beyond the stuff that goes in the friendly press releases. Sure. And the friendly press releases are always like, we're going to help humans do what they do best because very few companies are going to be outright about like, to be honest, you might need less people, right? But I think the reality is that in some cases, that is the case. And if it's for the better for the company, it's going to be tough to make an argument against that. Because man, I mean, if these systems can smoke it like they are with images, you know, pick an ease from a whatever, yeah. ouch, you know, we'd rather have the machine tackle <laughs> these problems, you know? Yeah. I've been in many customer meetings where they're like, I've got a hundred different versions of this, InfoSec boxes telling me I've got alerts. And I throw out the ones that are too noisy because I don't have the staff to handle the false alarms. The false alarm is almost worse than not knowing for some reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that case, yeah, there's definitely driving on the enterprise side. Look, we can't staff this up. It just doesn't make sense to do it that way. Yeah. Well, thank goodness that there's folks like yourselves who are developing other modes and methods. So awesome. Bob, that's all we have for time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, man. Yeah.
That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.